Oh, very good. So Solomon, my goodness, this this has been it's actually been really difficult putting this one together. I've um, I think I was having a bit of a look. I think I've done maybe six six or seven sermons now. This is probably the one that I've spent the most time on and feel the least confident about. So that's a good way to <laughs> a good way to start. Hey. Um, but I just, I've been so uh, blessed by having a look at the life of Solomon and just the stuff that he's written and stuff like that. Um, so I'm really hoping that the Spirit is going to just um, take my words and apply them to whatever you need to hear, um, or apply them to whatever situation you need to hear uh, about it. And if this is all terrible, then you can go and read it yourself anyway. So <laughs> we'll start with that caveat. So for anybody that's known me, you'll know that I'm a man of many hobbies. Um, I like to build computers. I'm a bit of a, bit of a nerd. I like to build, I've built every single one of my computers since I was probably in early high school. Uh, I like playing with microcontrollers. I've, um, I've been a software guy for most of my career. So a microcontroller is something that lets me like program software to manipulate things in the outside world, hardware, uh, which is pretty cool. So I've built um, computer-controlled CNC machines, like computer-controlled mills. Um, I've built uh, aircraft monitoring stations, which is very, very nerdy, but very, very cool. Gives me a premium subscription to Flight Radar because I feed them my data. Um, I've built uh, these really cool-looking, uh, it's kind of like a clock that's like a matrix of words. And um, with microcontrollers, I can turn on little LEDs and stuff behind the letters that <laughs> spell out exactly what the time is. I made one of those for a gift, uh, which was pretty cool. Uh, I've built 3D printers. I made a 3D scanner earlier this year. Um, I've come up with... <laughs> Iron Man. Actually, you know what? Iron Man gets a mention in this sermon, so <laughs> jump on the gun. Uh, I really like geography and cartography. There's something really cool about maps. I love the uh, learning about how uh, old cartographers and stuff like that, they'd put fake towns and fake streets in maps um, as like a copyright thing. So if someone copied their map, they'd look for this fake street that doesn't exist and they'd be able to tell whether someone had copied their map. And, uh, so I got into a lot of geography type stuff. I've made software that uh, takes geographic data and turns it into like abstract art, which um, you might argue is not art because it's computer generated, but it's about as arty as I get. Um, I've started getting into things with cars. So I uh, sold my little Euro car because I couldn't do anything to it. It's basically like a computer. Uh, you'd think that I'd know how to play with computers, but not in cars. They're a whole different beast. So I bought an older style Hilux so that I can muck around on it and learn how the engine works and do my own wiring. Uh, it's been really, really fun. I've been building a battery box so that I can go camping and plug a fridge in. Uh, it's been really, really good. Uh, I like to design aircraft, remote control aircraft. And so I've built remote control aircraft. I love the computer-aided design. I like testing them. I like crashing them. I like rebuilding them. It's really good fun. Uh, I like creating websites. Websites, web applications, uh, mobile applications. I've created heaps of those. I've started getting into woodworking as well. So uh, I've recently built an art desk for my wife. Uh, I've built little um, jewelry boxes. I've built wall-mounted bottle openers on my CNC machine out of wood, make them look really, really cool. I've taken up photography at different points in my life. I've taken up videography. I've taken up graphic design. Um, I went and got my pilot's license. Uh, and I even took up knitting just to understand how to knit. Uh, do, do I sleep? Um, well, I do, I do eventually. 
There's a, there's a whole podcast, yes, I've done podcasting on, on, uh, on aviation. Uh, and I've actually got a list about that much as long again of things that I want to do in the future. So um, I have a very understanding wife. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know about you, but I just feel super uh, lazy. I feel very unsatisfied if I'm not trying something new, if I'm not pushing the envelope of my ability, if I'm not challenged, if I'm not learning something, if I'm not trying something I've never done before, if I'm not failing at something to learn through it. Um, and yes, I do have my downtime, so I do like to veg and chill out and hang out with my wife and play computer games and go for a walk, all that kind of stuff. But my, my modus operandi, the, the general way that I work is that I need to be trying something new. I need to be pushing the envelope, that kind of thing. Um, and I've always thought that this restlessness that I have within me to, to do all these kind of things is just because I need to be challenged. I'm not feeling satisfied enough. Um, I just, like, I've got all these projects, and I just want to do them all now so I can come up with another 10 projects to do, and maybe that'll satisfy this, um, this need to, to know more, to do more, to understand more. But slowly, um, I've been coming to understand that there might be a bit more behind this lack of satisfaction in all the things that I've, uh, I've been doing. And the, the older Christians here, the more mature Christians, might probably understand where I'm going with this. The, the wiser among you, and that's actually a really good segue into who we're going to talk about today, Solomon, the wisest guy who ever lived aside from Jesus. And what I want to do is right at the very beginning, I want to clarify that if I accidentally say Solomon is the wisest guy who ever lived, I mean second to Jesus. <laughs> so I will try and clarify that, but don't need to, um, to pull me up on that one because I've said right at the beginning, Jesus is wiser than, uh, than Solomon. But here we go. So Solomon... He was a really interesting guy. His biography reads uh, like the script of a crazy movie, right? He's born of um, King David um, and it's Bathsheba, isn't it? Bathsheba. I, I did know that. I just didn't write it down. And I was thinking in my notes when I was going over this. I'm like, oh, I'm going to forget her name. I've got to write that down. But it's all good. Remembered. So um, he is born out of this, um, I guess, this marriage of this guy and woman who committed adultery and then King David had killed this other uh, lady's husband so that he could hide their adultery and stuff like that. So this is where kind of Solomon comes out of. We know that um, David's life was one of war and conflict. He was um, always going to be at war and that kind of stuff. So Solomon would have grown up in, uh, in that as well. And before King David passes away, he names Solomon as his successor. Uh, and it, but it's not without competition, right? Because Solomon isn't actually David's first son, which is usually how that works. Um, Adonijah, who is David's first son with Haggith, is also contesting for the, the throne, the, um, the kingship. And so there's this, uh, there's a whole heap of things where Adonijah is kind of like setting up all these meals and stuff to say that, hey, he's king and he doesn't invite Solomon and all the people that are on Solomon's side. And there's this whole thing basically culminates with Solomon. He does end up king, but um, it, may, like, it culminates with Adonijah and a couple of other guys being killed and other people being exiled. So it's a very, it's a pretty messy kind of uh, intro into kingship. Um, and so Solomon becomes the king. And he goes to this place called Gibeon to offer sacrifices um, to God where he meets God in a dream. And we'll pick up in 1 Kings 3, 5 to 9. Uh, so at Gibeon, 
The Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant a king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? So, so Solomon is in a really awesome position, a really lucky position, where he, God pretty much says to him, hey, what, you tell me what you want. It's kind of like you get one wish. Um, and he doesn't do the whole, oh, I wish for a hundred wishes. Um, he doesn't do the whole, uh, oh, yes, I want to be famous. I want to be rich. You, you guys know the story. So he, um, he asks for wisdom, which God is very, very pleased with. Um, so much so, in fact, that God gives Solomon, like all of the other stuff that you and I would probably, the, when, when, when I say, what's the first thing you really, really want? A lot of us probably, you know, gloss over money and security and all that and maybe a house and stuff and then we get to the whole oh yes well I should probably not ask for that stuff I'll ask for um, something that's that's worthwhile and Solomon does that and he gets all this stuff as well so next to Jesus Solomon becomes the wisest man to ever live Um, so the Bible tells us that he wrote over a thousand songs he wrote, oh, he spoke 3,000 Proverbs, at least some of which we have in the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs and the book of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, uh, which is a book of love poetry, which you can go and read. Dang um, Now, his power is unparalleled as he reigns as king over Israel for roughly 40 years during a season of, of peace and prosperity in which leaders from all over the earth visit to inquire of him and his wisdom and to see his wealth. And like they, uh, rumors of him get away and these, these other leaders and stuff, they're like, oh my goodness, can this even be real? I, I don't believe this. I've got to go check this out for myself. And they come and they see Solomon. They see his wisdom. They see all the stuff he's built. And they're like, oh wow, they weren't, they weren't lying. This wasn't embellished. This dude is unparalleled. Um, he oversaw the construction of God's temple. God's temple was... Immaculate. It was pretty. It was funny. Um, Rick came in here this morning and he was like, "Ah, oh, yes." With all the fairy lights and everything in here, it's like, "Ah, oh, Solomon's temple." I'm like, man, yeah, we need a lot more gold in this <laughs> in this room to make it like Solomon's temple. The uh, all the design of the temple was like artisan crafted. It was amazing. It took <laughs> seven years to build. It took thousands and thousands of um, of workers of, of slave labor. Um, actually, he then moved on to build his own palace that took. 13 years, so even longer than the temple. It was bigger as well. And then after that, he started building palaces for his wives. Uh, His complicated family life included 700 wives and 300 concubines, which is, I just can't even imagine that. You could, um, he could sit down for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with a different wife or concubine for almost an entire year. So if you, you, you imagine, we're halfway through this year, right? Um, and just think about every meal you've ever had in this entire year in a different face in front of you, and we're only halfway there. I just can't even imagine how, how the, uh, the conflict and the 
backfighting and all that. It was just it's crazy. Um, he was buying thousands and thousands of horses off the Egyptians. He had 12,000 horses and 4,000 stalls for, for chariots. And, started, and Solomon started off um, kind of obedient to God. He was uh, a lot of the, um, the Proverbs and stuff that he wrote, and even in the first psalm that he wrote or that we have recorded of him, it's very... Um, you know, God-centric, be obedient to God, that kind of thing. So he starts off pretty well, but uh, we see that even right from the beginning, there are a couple of red flags about how Solomon's life is going to play out. So as soon as David names Solomon king, uh, they start plotting together about all the people they're going to have to have to kill and, and have to, to, to punish and stuff like that. David's like, in my reign, I had uh, like treaties with these guys, but they kind of did me wrong. Um, but you're a different king now. You haven't had those treaties. So if you could just go kill them for me, that'd be, that'd be great. So it's a really kind of strange introduction to, um, to, to his kingship. Um, and in fact, well before... So uh, in Deuteronomy 17, um, when Moses had taken all the Israelites... Um, out of Egypt, and just before they're about to go into the promised land, Moses um, actually lays down some ground rules about what a king is supposed to be like, and I found this super interesting. So um, we've been going through like the, the story of the Israelites, we've been meeting all these kind of people of the Old Testament, we know that when the Israelites, uh, we met Melchizedek, who was one of my other sermon guys, it was pretty cool, just as they were spying out uh, the promised land, and they go into the promised land, and they go through this period of the judges, um, and, but eventually they go, oh, we actually want a king like all the other people around us. And that's, that's where we're looking, at the, we're looking at the kings at the moment. And, and Moses, he knew this, right? He somehow knew that as soon as they'd settled down and stuff like that, they were going to want a king. So he lays down some ground rules about what a king is supposed to be like. So in Deuteronomy 17, uh, verse 14, we read, When you enter the land of the Lord your God, uh, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like the nations around us, which is exactly what they do. Uh, I think it is Samuel. Samuel anoints the first king, and he's like, guys, you don't want a king because they're going to have to take all the people. They're going to take a bit of your stuff. Anyway, uh, God saw this coming and filled Moses in, and Moses is going to lay down these ground rules. So the ground rules are, let us, uh, let us set a king over us like the nations uh, Sorry. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. All right, pretty good so far. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. Okay, doing pretty good so far still. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself. Oops, yeah. Strike number one, how many horses did Solomon have? He had 12,000 horses. Where was he getting these horses from? Do you remember? It's getting them from Egypt. All right, we'll keep reading. Um, the kingdom must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord your God has told you you're not to go back that way again. So, all right, still not doing so, so, for, uh, so good. Well, there's a couple of red flags popping up here. You are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He's got 
700 wives and 300 concubines. This is all, the thing that I just love about this is this is like so specific to, to Solomon's circumstances, hey? Who, um, and that's probably, that's probably even why they, they recorded it in, uh, in Kings as well, because it's kind of like, look at all these things uh, that you're not supposed to be doing, and Solomon's really specifically doing all of them. He must not take many wives, his heart, his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. This dude had unparalleled wealth for anybody at the time. So right from the very beginning, literally right from the very beginning, we see these kind of red flags popping up about Solomon and perhaps the trajectory of the, of the way that his life is, is going to go. And this is exactly what happens. Solomon starts to worship the gods of his wives and he ceases to be obedient to God. In 1 Kings 11... 9 to 3, we read, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, uh, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear, it out, the whole, I will not tear out the whole kingdom from him, because, uh, but I will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So Solomon turns his back on God and starts to pursue a whole bunch of other projects and hobbies. Oh. Might be tying into what I was talking about at the start. Uh, you name it, he's done it. And we'll read about that in a sec. But I kind of see Solomon as this guy who's, um, he's kind of like, his life is just an experiment about what happens if you give somebody every single possible worldly um, opportunity to succeed. Um, and it just, let's see what happens if we just give him like literally everything. Uh, his life is kind of like a, a, a big experiment. And in Ecclesiastes, we have recorded a bit of a summary from the end of his life about what he thinks is most important. So he's had all these opportunities. He's seen, he's like had God appear to him twice. Uh, he's the wisest man on earth. He has had unparalleled wealth and power and authority. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I'd really like to know what the wisest guy uh, in the world thought towards the end of his life. If you've ever um, b- been around death, you know that like coming towards the end of your life or being around somebody close to you that is near the end of their life, it's very, very clarifying about what is important. Um, so Solomon is pretty much this guy who if you could combine Albert Einstein with... Bill Gates, an Iron Man. Uh, if you merge that into like one person who is almost always, uh, who is also simultaneously prime minister and pope, <laughs> that's, uh, that's pretty much who we have in Solomon. So if I came to this guy towards the end of his life, and I and I, and I came with my problems of being satisfied with the stuff that I'm doing, if I come to him and I'm like Solomon, you know. Been in my job for 10 years, it's a good job, I've got nothing to complain about, but I'm not really challenged there. I don't really don't really feel like it. I'm just rocking up to get the money and I'm coming home. I'm 
I've started all these hobbies and stuff to try and find a little bit more satisfaction, to try and learn a bit more, to um, try and push the envelope, to try and mix things up a bit, to try, and, to try and change things. This is how Solomon, towards the end of his life, I think, would reply. In Ecclesiastes verse 1, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, that is Solomon, meaningless. So I've come to Solomon and I'm, I'm like, oh, I'm feeling pretty down, man. What's all this about? And he goes, meaningless meaningless says the teacher i'm like are you sure he's like yep utterly meaningless everything is meaningless what do people gain from all of their labors at which they toil under the sun it's a bag of laughs this guy isn't he (laughs) and this word meaningless it's actually really hard to nail down in english uh it's really hard to nail down what its essential meaning is um, different Bibles will render it meaningless um, or vanity. So it's in, it's in vain. The stuff you're doing is it's all in vain. Vanity, vanity, utterly vanity. Uh, it can mean uh, it's rendered in uh, in some Bibles as emptiness. Um, this word it's hebel, hebel in the Hebrew or hevel, uh, and it also means it's used elsewhere in the Bible to mean like vapor or breath or mist. Um, so it's, a, it's like a really complex word. It's really hard to render, but you know, life is pretty complex, so a complex word to describe it is probably fairly accurate. I kind of see this, this meaningless or, this, or, um, or our life being described as this kind of like breath, this mist. It's kind of like if you come out on a cold morning and you just you breathe and you see your condensed breath just come out in this like flurry of... Um, complexity and awesomeness, um, and but as soon as you like, it's 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 there one second, and then it's it's gone the next. And our lives are uh, can seem a little bit like that, and that's what I think he's trying to get at here. So not only is there this kind of like futility or this this meaningless, but our life here is also really quite short and brief in in uh, in the big scheme of things. Uh, and this is coming from a guy who's done everything, right? So you might be thinking, oh, maybe if I just had a little bit more money, I could do the things that really matter to me. Well, Solomon was the richest dude on earth at, at that point in time, and he says, meaningless, vanity. Maybe if I just had a bit more power or authority or control, oh, I'd really love that promotion. If I just got that promotion, that would be super helpful. Well, Solomon, he was like prime minister and pope at the same time. He was, I guarantee you, you're never going to have as much authority as as Solomon. Um, And he said, meaningless. Maybe if I just had more stuff. Maybe if I did more things. Maybe if I had more projects. Maybe if I had more hobbies. Well, Solomon had multiple mansions. He could literally have anything he wanted. He did pretty much everything that you could try. And he says, meaningless. Maybe you would be satisfied if you had a relationship, you had a better relationship. Well, I don't actually know about this one with Solomon because I don't really know how having 700 wives would really be that great, but I assure you that he had probably more uh, understanding of relationship than a lot of us, and he says meaningless. There's some caveat. I'm getting to some other stuff too. Don't worry. I'm not calling your relationships meaningless. Uh, maybe if I just knew more, 
Maybe if I knew how the stock market was going to do stuff. Maybe if I just knew how the world worked a bit better, I'd, just, I'd feel more satisfied with where I am and with what I can do with my life. If I just had a bit more of an understanding. Well, Solomon was the wisest dude that ever lived apart from Jesus, and he said that it's meaningless. So listen to this. This is in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 4 to 11. This is Solomon, right? I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasures. My heart took delight in all of my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun." So I've come to Solomon to try and get a bit of closure on why I'm feeling so dissatisfied about all the stuff that I'm doing. And he comes to me and he says, well, buddy, it's because it's all meaningless. (laughs) Now, there might be some wisdom to this. What a downer, hey? But there's also a clue not to be missed in all these passages. So that word hevel, um, that mist, that meaningless, that um, vanity appears about 30 times in Ecclesiastes is going through. There's also another kind of phrase that pops up 30 times. And that's this phrase, um, under the sun, right? So at the very start, Solomon's like, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Um, uh, oh, I can't remember that first one. But at the end, it's kind of like, uh, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun, Right? Um, And so what Solomon is kind of doing here is he's scoping what he is saying is meaningless. He is providing a condition um, uh, through which, if you looked at the world, it would be meaningless. And that's this under the sun, right? And what this is, um, is it means life viewed solely without connection to God or revelation from God. It is literally... A godless life lived solely by our limited insights, gleaned solely by our experience, without any word from God. Under that view, almost everything is meaningless. So I've got an illustration, and I'm not entirely sure how this is going to go. You've probably all seen this one before. I think uh, I can't remember who I nicked it off, but I've kind of modified it to suit my purpose. Um, And I've only practiced this once. So this is probably why I was a bit nervous at the start. So hopefully this lands. But um, so Solomon Wright is this, is this kind of example of a life uh, lived under the sun. And what that is, is this, this is your timeline of your life, right? All you guys nodding because you've seen some of this before. I've modified it. So you can still be shocked and awed. So this is your life under the sun, right? This is life without any kind of connection to God. This is where you are born and this is where you die. And this is everything that you do here on earth under the sun. So 
you'll start and you're born and you're a, a toddler and you're probably not having too many existential, or maybe you do, I, don't, I haven't had a toddler. Do toddlers have existential crisis? Who knows what they're thinking? Maybe they do. Maybe that's why they cry so much because they're like, what is going on here? So you're born and you start going to school and primary school. I don't think you're really thinking too much about meaning. Maybe like little glimpses here and there, but then you get to, to high school and this is where you're starting to try and figure out who you are. So you might be trying to think a little bit more about what, like, what's meaningful in life, what you want to do. You're probably starting to have a bit of an idea of what you're going to study in uni. So you start studying a bit more in, in uni and all throughout high school and maybe university, you're having some uh, you know, desire for a relationship and there's all that kind of, um, oh, does she like me or doesn't she? And no one likes me and um, all that kind of anxiety that I'm, that I'm sure we've, we've all been through and you're wondering, oh, what is the meaning of life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're in uni and you start working for a bit and you're all fresh-faced and work's really exciting and it's new, but, you know, you've been working for a while now and you're really starting to look for a bit of extra meaning because you've been doing the same thing for... 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years, and then we're at a midlife crisis now. Um, so there's probably about a, a combi about here, babe. Just a bit of a heads up. And so you're like, well, oh, maybe I, you know, I've been working, maybe a little bit more stable. I've put my roots down. I've really got to figure out what, what the meaning of life is. But you know, maybe it's a new car or getting a bigger house and stuff like that. You continue working and, and working, and you retire. I don't know what retirement's like. I'm sure you fill your time with a whole heap of cool stuff, not having to, to work as much. But then, well, then it's over. And from your perspective, everything you've done in here is absolutely meaningless. For, for you, it's meaningless. You might have a couple of these overlapped with some of the people that you've like influenced and stuff like that. But ultimately, if life is viewed under the sun without any connection to God or anything like that, a lot of the stuff you do, in fact, almost everything you do is going to be meaningless because at this point you can't take any of this, any of this with you at all. Um, so on top of that, in the, in the grand scheme of the cosmos and, and all of that, our life is actually quite, quite brief and, and quite, quite fleeting. So Solomon's life... It's kind of an example. Now, Solomon did a whole heap of stuff. I would probably hazard to say Solomon did more in this than you guys are ever going to be able to do with just the resource that he had available to him. Um, and at the end, under this kind of model, he says it's meaningless. Um, so Solomon's life is kind of an example of the ways we might try and find meaning and satisfaction in our life. Um, but ultimately, if these things are apart from God, they're going to have no lasting meaning. But what if there was something above the sun? And we as Christians know that there is something above the sun. There is something, you know, in heaven. If you're using that kind of analogy as Christians, we know that there's something above the sun, as it were, and we can find enjoyment and satisfaction in the things we have, the work we do, and the experiences we get to be involved with if we fear the Lord and see his hand in all of those things. We can find enjoyment and satisfactions in the, in the things we have and the work we do and the experiences we get to be involved in if we fear the Lord and see his hand in all things. This means that we need to learn to trace all that we have back to the 
author of our life. God gives the job. He gives the success. He gives the creativity. He gives the wealth. He brings the two together in marriage. The piles of laundry show us God's generosity. And the dishes all over our, um, our counters remind us of God's daily provision. Seeing as God as provider of all the things and purpose behind all things move us to li- moves us to live thankful and joyful, meaningless lives. Knowing that God is working all things for good for those that love him means that even in the hard circumstances, the ones that in this model, if you come under hard circumstances, then, you know, it's, it's really unfair and you've got, there's no justification at the end of it. It's just a, sorry, lucked out kind of thing. Uh, knowing that God is working all things for good for those that love him means that even in hard circumstances, even in unfair circumstances, our toil in those isn't meaningless. He uses difficulty to strengthen and change us. He uses trials to sharpen us and to solidify the things we know about him. And through difficulty and loss, we learn that there's only one God who can help, one God who can provide and fill our hearts with glad, gladness and joy. When we begin to trace all things back to God, we will see that our satisfaction must be found in him and him alone. So that no matter what happens to our stuff, no matter what happens to our work, our health, our relationships, our experiences, we can find fulfillment and joy because we have God and in him we have everything and are given everything that makes life worth living. So to kind of modify this a little bit, so this is life under the sun, right? And we all know that as Christians, there's a bit more to it. There's life above the sun, if you will. So this is our life above the sun. And this is not unlimited, but I really want you to imagine that this is unlimited. So I'm going to try and, this has never worked in the times that I've tried it, but I'm going to aim for that door and it's going to go, oh, yeah, cool. So come on. So this is... So this is our life. This is actually the, the reality of our life, right? And that red line that I showed, oh, no, it's coming back. It's coming back. Pretend that it's out the back of the door. This is unlimited, right? This is, um, this is our eternity. And this little red bit right at the start, this is, this is that red that we saw before. And if you're just looking at this little bit, then all of the hardship and all the trial and all of the... Um, the things that we do, all of the houses that we try and get, all the money, all of the, um, the relationships that we try and build, if it just ends here, then ultimately it's all for nothing, right? But we know as Christians that there's a whole lot more to it. And in fact, there's two things that I want to bring out about this little bit that actually make this probably the most meaningful little bit of life um, that we're going to, well, I, I don't know, the meaningfulest bit that I can understand right now. We'll put it that way. And the first thing about this is um, uh, it's important to make a decision in this little bit about whether you're going to follow Jesus. That's, that's probably the most important decision that you're going to make about this because that one decision, uh, it affects this entire, entire rest of eternity. So the very, and that, that makes this bit really meaningful because the, what you decide in this little bit affects the rest of this, right? So in some ways, that kind of makes this bit the most meaningful bit of life, <laughs> under the sun at least, that we're going to have. Um, and the other thing 
about this little bit. Um, I've kind of lost it. This is where I hadn't practiced this bit, but I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit can just get me through this. The other bit about this is that the, the only way that we're going to get really any other meaningful bits about um, any other meaning out of this life is if we are doing the things that are worthwhile in God's sight, if we are being obedient to God. This is, this is how you get lasting satisfaction out of this bit. If you're just in this bit to, to, to buy the mansions, all that kind of stuff, then at this point, um, it, it's all meaningless, right? But if you're doing the things, if you are obeying God, if you're doing the things that God wants you to be doing, this is, I, um, I think, Parky, you, you kind of mentioned this right at the very, the very start in your little prayer and share and even in, in Dan to a, um, to a bit. Ooh, the, the things that are important are the, are the things of God, right? Um, so I'm just going to read what I wrote down here because I feel like I'm going to do a lot better if I just do that. Um, right, so... What's really important in this red bit is whether you decide to repent and follow Jesus because that's going to determine the rest of how this plays out for you. And that makes our time here super important. And in the grand scheme of things, our time here is quite short. It's that idea of that mist, that hebel, that, that breath. You come out in the morning and there's that flurry of action as you, you breathe out. And it's all complicated and stuff, but it's over as, as soon as it comes. So there's also kind of like a certain sense of urgency, right? Because we only get to do this little bit once. And God has some stuff for us to do in this little bit. So it's filling our time with stuff that's not really worthwhile. Um, I, I just want this to be a challenge that you should probably figure out what is worthwhile if you don't know what is worthwhile. And that's the stuff you should be doing in this little bit. Um, so there's this kind of sense of urgency uh, to do that, uh, to be obedient through him. And and being obedient through him, it's only through uh, the hope that we have in him that anything we do here is going to have any lasting meaning. It's only in the work um, that we have here that it's going to have any lasting meaning. So if you're, you know, if you're just in a relationship because you want to be in a relationship, then that's not really going to have any lasting meaning. But if you are in a relationship because you want to love your wife the way that God loved the church, then that is what gives it meaning. Um, and this is kind of what Solomon found towards the end of his life. At the end of Ecclesiastes, this is his conclusion, right? Now all has been heard. So pretty much the whole, you can read the whole of Ecclesiastes. It's pretty much what I was talking about before. Meaningless, meaningless, 30 times meaningless. Um, now that all has been heard, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including everything hidden, uh, every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So I just want to challenge you guys that our life, I don't want to be a downer, right? Now, you can, like, this, Ecclesiastes kind of seems like a bit of a downer, but for us, it's actually really cool because we get the hindsight of the wisest dude in the world without having to actually go through that. We get the hindsight of uh, seeing Solomon go through all of the worldly stuff and at the end go, it's all meaningless. We get the opportunity now that we don't actually have to follow that path, that we can um, figure out what is meaningful in the eyes of God and we can pursue that kind of stuff rather than just chasing all the stuff that is like a chasing of the wind, a hebel, a mist, meaningless vanity. So where do we meet Jesus in this story? Well, we actually kind of meet him in his absence and we're shown how meaningless a life without him is. We're, we're really shown what not to do. 
Um, and it's kind of good news that we have the wisest man on earth who's kind of done it before, so we can take a leaf out of his book and go, well, that's not what I want for my life. I want the stuff that I do in my life to be meaningful for the long term. Hmm. So what's really important is that we put our faith in God and we be obedient to him. But he knew that we were never going to be able to do that perfectly. We're never going to be able to meet his standard. And he wanted us so much, nice segue into communion, that he came up with a a plan to to save us. So that even when we fail at all that kind of stuff, um, we have to give an account for our life. and, And we are standing there in front of the the judge, our God, and he's like, what did you do in your life that was meaningful? And we go, well, there's was a bit that wasn't. Kind of let you down there. Now, Jesus would stand in and he would say, for all of the sin, for all the stuff that he or she did wrong, I've paid for it. I've paid for it. They repented and they chose to follow me. That, that's, that's it. You can... There's like there's two parts to this kind of story. There is the, if you want to be in that blue bit of eternity, then the only way you do that is to repent and follow Jesus and accept him as your saviour. If you want to have a meaningful life that carries on into eternity, then you've got to be obedient to God and what he wants you to do. Two different things. The obedience doesn't get you there. That's why Jesus had to die. But out of, our, like, out of the love and the trust that we have, in God, and we want to be obedient to him anyway. So, as we come to the communion table and we remember what Jesus did to save us so that when we aren't obedient to him, when we do sin, that it is not held against us for all eternity and he has paid for it, maybe you could <coughs> contemplate what the things that you are doing in your life, like what are you chasing in life? Is it stuff that is meaningless? Is it just hebel? Is it a mist? Is it something? Here's the, here's the really cool thing about, like this man, this word hebel is so complicated because if you think of a mist or think of smoke and stuff like that, it looks like something that's tangible, right? It looks like it might have some kind of substance to it, but then you go and try and grab it and there's nothing there. It's, there's no substance to it. There's no satisfaction in it if you're just chasing those kind of things. And we, we really need to be chasing the things that God wants us to chase. We need to be obedient to what he's called us to do as Christians. And we need to be obedient to live the way that he has called us to live as Christians. And so as we think about what it cost, um, because we can't do that, Maybe you could think about some of the ways that, uh, or maybe some of the things that you are chasing that, that are just a mist, that aren't worthwhile in this life. And maybe pray that God would show you what, are, what is worthwhile, what is substantive, what is going to satisfy you, not even just now, but eternally. So, I'm not really sure how we're doing community today. It looks like we're probably going to have to, if you've got a partner, maybe share a cup with them. Um, if not, feel free to take your own cup. Um, but yes, so we'll grab the, the bread and the cup, and we will. Um, I'll pray once we've once we've grabbed those.